Real Finance with J-Dub is sponsored by Little Woods Capital Advisors, LLC. Little Woods, humble beginnings, big results. Hello, and welcome to the premiere of Real Finance with J-Dub podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Monahan, and today we will be discussing the importance of financial literacy for the modern woman, whether she be single, married, or a primary caregiver. And we will also talk about the potential financial risks associated with a marriage or partnership when two people decide to cohabitate and therefore combine their finances. To help me do that, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Little Woods Capital Advisors, Jeff Williams. It's great to have you here. Good morning. Thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. It's great. This is exciting. We made it through the rain today. I know. <laughs> Had to come out for this. Okay. So... Women and finances. Yes. I like this. This is not something people talk about enough. No, not at all. Yeah. I've noticed lately that there is a big push um, from professional women to kind of like bring more women into male-dominated fields. Right. However, we're not equipping young women with financial savvy. And so they can find themselves often in, you know, a rather prominent field with no idea how to kind of manage their own finances. Exactly. Yeah, it's that kind of financial literacy is obviously a problem that runs the gamut in terms of who it affects. But I, I wanted to focus on on women in particular because there there's a whole host of reasons why uh, I feel like they should be more actively engaged in managing the, the, the family finances, you know, their own personal finances and, uh, and just how that's evolving. It's, it's evolving a lot more rapidly today because of the way technology works, uh, the, the fluidity of the legal system and so forth. So, uh, but the, the main overarching theme and it's really just to, um, a means to empower women Mm -hmm. in general. Right. Because knowledge is power, as the saying goes. But, uh, but the problem is we're still trapped, for some reason, culturally, we're still trapped in more of a 1950s mentality right. in terms of who runs the show. Now, I want to go back to something that you said a second ago. You said personal finances, and then you said family finances. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of to what you just ended on right there, I think there is a, a large concept that my personal finances stop once I become part of a couple or a family. Right. That's a good point. And then at that point, it's a big pool and somebody else takes it. Right. Often. That's crazy if you think about it. Yeah. And and the irony is I, I find women do a great job managing their money, at least in my experience and based on the research that I've been able to gather on this. Uh, and then once once they get married, then suddenly... There, there's a power shift, right? And uh, and what I'm trying to do is instill, you know, a sense of urgency. And that's one of the primary goals of Little Woods is is to empower people so that they can make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Makes my job easier. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I don't like there. There's just too much. Uh, there's not enough energy put into this. And uh, you know, as you know. Uh, a few years ago, I started uh, working in the, the traveling notary business. Yeah. And one of the things that came out of that was I began to notice how 
how often I would visit clients, particularly like in a medical facility, you know, for example, where, uh, you know, mom or dad or grandma is lying there literally on their deathbed and yeah. they're just deciding to, hey, I need a will right. or I need a power of attorney. You know, I need my daughter to write checks for the bills. Right. Um, these are the kinds of things that need to be talked about very early on. Um, in fact, uh, when I talk to younger people about this kind of stuff, I always tell them the minute that you finish high school, that's when you need to start planning for the future. Wow. That is very powerful. I've heard many people lately saying that they wish that financial literacy courses were being taught like much more functionally within high school. Right. So right. you don't, because in my generation, we had the, you know, college, um, like feeding frenzy of credit card companies that they, they would camp out in the local campus bookstore. And then a minute you walked in, you'd get a free t-shirt if you filled out, but you know, opened up a credit card and there begins your debt. Yeah. It, like, and that was especially true with our generation, that's generation what I'm X. Yeah. yeah. The lost generation, I right. call it because nobody ever talks about it. It's either the baby boomers getting all the credit or the millennials, you know, the ones that we, you know, tend yeah. to trash. Tend to look down on. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I'm like, this, <laughs> this isn't any different that there's always intergenerational squabbles going on. No, and it doesn't uh, really help. Kind. Although I will say, I think that, um, between, you know, the boomers, Gen X, and then the millennials, like, there have been major, like you said earlier, major at least technological shifts that now affect how we can manage our money right? and and finances long into the future that just like the old rules a lot of times don't necessarily apply. Some still do, but just in terms of even like investment or management, it's not the same picture. Yeah, and the, the business has changed, but what hasn't is, you know, we have all these bells and whistles and all these great tools that we can work with now, but the, the reality is people aren't any better off in terms of their knowledge of personal finance than they mm -hmm. were before we had all these things. Yes. And, uh, you know, we we're talking about credit cards, you know, when we first started college, I was amazed that I didn't, I barely had a working history, you know, in terms of income. And I was able to fill out a credit card application <laughs> and get like $6,500 <laughs> worth of credit. And I'm not even worth this. Where's this coming from? Yeah. I was like, it, <laughs> this is, this is really great, you know, but, yeah. uh, but it's not, but not. Yeah. So, uh, so oh, yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about young women maybe just just exiting college or just entering the workforce in the 20s-ish kind of range and then relationships and finances. Mm -hmm. So at that point like that picture like what should we be focusing on? Um well, obviously debt is a big part of it because yeah. uh if you choose to go to college, there's a good chance that you can in incur a great deal of debt, whether it's, you know, through the government or, or private loans, because people do both sometimes. True. Um, and then there's, there's credit card debt. And, and I just kind of want to preface this by saying that, um, you know, one of the things that we do at Little Woods is we don't judge people for the financial decisions that they've made. Right. And, and at the risk of sounding too political, I don't believe that uh, the middle class, the working class makes enough money so that they can afford a relatively comfortable lifestyle and still be able to address things like retirement savings, um, so on and so forth. So, uh, so, so if you have, so if you have an income, 
or if, if student loans can do the job, um, I would just say, okay, that's fine. Tread lightly. Um, try to stay away from, from credit cards. Um, and this is a good time to, to mention, uh, the idea of developing a credit card history, if it's possible while you're still living at home during high school, if your parents, one of your parents has a credit card that they simply add you to the account, not, not make you a co-owner of it, but if they just give you your own card, you can start to develop a credit history because developing a credit history is extremely important nowadays. And the sooner that you can do it, because one of the primary factors that goes into your credit score is how long of a credit history you have. So the sooner Mm -hmm. that you can start that, the better. Yeah. Um, So I'm not, I'm not like other people in my business who, who rail against debt in that, in that sense. I do think it's an important component and I do think that it's important that you get started early. So the important, the healthy factor in it is managing a balance or a credit card faithfully, because I've always heard, and you can tell me if that's, this is true, that every time that you make an on-time payment on a credit, on a balance on a credit card or something like that, that that is good credit reporting. Yes. And so you're building a, a history of being reliable, being responsible, Right. And, and the, but the key point there is, uh, and, and I was going to take, this is where I was going with this. You want to start out with, and they have banks that actually give out cards that are specifically designed for college students. Um, so they generally have smaller balances, which is good because there's no need to have a huge balance when you're starting out. No, that's true. Um, it really should just kind of be a backup mechanism. Yeah. This is really, I, I think the sense I'm getting from this is that you're encouraging people to think about using credit at a, as a strategy to build success in life rather than, Hey, get a credit card. And that gives you more breathing room. Like that's not necessarily how you should be looking at it. Right. No, that's exactly right. And okay. it should it should definitely be tied in as part of your overall portfolio. Gotcha. Um, so it's almost like kind of, you know, spending some time in the gym. Like you're building some health. Yes, basically. exactly. Like exactly. Okay. Financial health. Okay. And um and I wanted to come back to this. So every time you you made the you made the point about the the payments. Um whether you make the minimum payment and start paying interest on your card, or if you pay off the balance every month, as long as the payment is on time, then that, that is recorded as a, as a good mark in your credit history. Okay. Great. So it, so some people, and I wanted to say that cause some people might think that, Oh, if I don't pay the whole balance, I'm gonna get dinged for it. And that's just not true. You just making those payments on time. That's the critical part. Now, as, uh, in terms of general advice, I would say, yeah, the ideal situation is to pay off your balance every month because on average, you're going to be paying 16, 18% on interest. Sure. Uh, once they start applying it. So uh, I've seen uh, Mark Cuban in interviews talk about credit cards this way. He'll say the best way to generate a 16% return is to cut up your credit cards or, or is to, yeah, yeah, is to pay off you your credit card back. debt. Yeah. yeah. That's a 16% return yeah, to yeah. yourself, you know? And when you think about it, people just kind of really, like a lot of things, they think about it in the abstract, but they don't actually see. Sure. Um, they say, okay, well, I'm paying interest. They they don't really stop and think about. What that actually looks like. Yeah, and, yeah. and what it means in the overall scope of things. So You know, and that's one of the things, just to circle back again, that technology these days, you know, everything's in an app. Every, you You pay bills through email. Now, if you don't take the time to actually look at your statements and actually look at like how much that interest is every month that you're accruing, 
that's staggering. Right. You're not like, going to know if it's getting away from you or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> stop and read that. Actually scroll through that. Okay. Okay. That's good. Okay. So credit, credit cards, college. I, and I like that you say that don't focus on mistakes necessarily that have been made. It's kind of a, okay, now what kind of strategy that you employ. That's great. Um, another thing I want to say though is this is not this whole thing that we're talking about today, financial literacy. This is not for people who necessarily have excess money laying around. This is about learning what money means to you personally, wherever you are, whatever your level is. Right. And how to position yourself better. Right. And so you work with people of all varying amounts of income, savings, debt, things like that. Like it's not your services specifically are not regarded for someone of a s certain class. Right, right. And okay. and there and that's a good point because there and one of the reasons why I started Little Woods was because I felt like everyone and when I say everyone, I mean financial institutions, financial advisors, they all seem to be fishing in the same pond now. Mm -hmm. They're all trying to go for what we call the big ticket retail. Yeah. Um, None of those commercials resonate with me at all. Exactly. You know? And <laughs> <laughs> well, we wanted to open a yoga studio when we're 50, and I'm like, well, who has that? Right. <laughs> Good for you guys, I guess. And one of the reasons I made the point that, that we don't judge people is because what I'm seeing is, and, and I said this before, uh, I don't see a lot of people, people in general don't have a lot of uh, disposable income. In other words, once you pay all of your bills at the end of the month, what's left over to mm -hmm. save? Yeah. And so when I see people rack up credit card debt, and I think they know instinctively that is something that they shouldn't be doing, but they're trying, like I said, they want to have, they want to maintain a certain lifestyle for themselves or for them and their family. And sometimes a credit card is the only way that they can, that they can do that. And, and I think we'll touch on this later. Mm. A lot of times if you're in a situation where particularly if, if you're a woman, uh, and, your husband or your boyfriend is running the finances, he may, he may put you on a budget that might not be enough. Right. And sudden, suddenly the, the credit card becomes a vehicle that you use to, to get the stuff that you really think you want and need. Right. And, uh, so what I figured out was most of the firms out there are trying to find a way to court, uh, people who are at the top of the economic strata. Whereas what, I, what I've seen is the people, everyone else is pretty much being left behind. And the reason for that is, and I'll use the 401k mm. account as an example. It, if you, let's say most of, and, and for most people, I would say this is true, or at least the, the majority of them, that their 401, uh, besides their, they have two main retirement vehicles. They have their home where they're building up equity, hopefully, yeah. Or and they have their four hundred one k account, whatever or whatever account they have through their employer. That's where they're, where they'll have any savings basically. So, but the the way the system works is, and and this is basically written in the law. Uh, their financial advisors are very limited in terms of being able to apply their trade to to the money that is sitting in those accounts. And what I mean by that is. Uh, really the only way that we can actually get our hands in there and move stuff around is if the employer gives us permission and, and also, uh, includes that in as a part of the benefits package, they'll say, okay, well, we'll, we'll, this is a, an option for you. If you don't want to choose your own investments, uh, for a quarterly fee, 
uh, will our vendor will provide the service for you and they'll they'll invest your money for you. Mm. Um, but if let's say you don't have the veil that available or you don't want to pay it or you don't want to do it, if you were to go to a, like a financial advisor, let's say you go to your bank and you talk to a banker there and you say, I need somebody to tell me how to invest my 401k money because I don't know how to do it. You can't go to a regular stockbroker these days and do that uh-huh. because they won't earn any commissions from it because they can't get their hands in there. No. Because right. the employer has effectively, and the federal Locked government has effectively yeah, yeah. built a fence around it. So as a result, unless you've got a pile of money sitting somewhere else, yeah. then that advisor has no motivation whatsoever what to tell you, you know, to tell you what to do there. So- as a matter of fact, the ones that do really just do it as a matter of courtesy because you've got this other money with them. So gotcha. they, they, they feel like, okay, well, you know, they invested all this other money for me and it's generates, you know, some nice commissions for me. Sure. Then, then why not tell them, I'll, you know, it, what to I'll do? Be, I'll be nice. Yeah, with, with this part over here. Yeah. So that also sounds like somebody wouldn't be putting a ton of effort into that. No, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, who knows what kind of quality of advice you're actually going to get there. <laughs> no. So when, when people, uh, become clients with, uh, with Littlewoods that we, we automatically provide you with, uh, the tools to decide how you want to invest your 401k money, because there's no financial interest in it for us, uh, because we look at everything. Okay. And so that includes, you know, uh, investments, savings, credit card debt. And one thing that, you, you know, we were talking about the beginning of the financial life cycle, so to speak. Uh, another thing, people will ask me about is when do I start thinking about life insurance and the traditional methodology there is that you really don't want to buy life insurance until you have people who are dependent on your income. Right. Right. Until you start a family. Right. Um, My take on that is that is not necessarily true. And this is kind of a personal thing for me because, you know, uh, I had open heart surgery when I was in my early thirties. Right. And if I had started buying life insurance when I was in college, it would have been way cheaper. I could have done it for way longer. Yeah. And and even if it's just, even if you don't have any dependents, you don't know if your family has the money because right. they're not going to tell you. They're, you don't know if they have the money to bury you, basically. So That's true. At least if you get started early, yeah. there's a chance, well, before I get develop some health issues or, uh, you know, before the the problems of life begin to start. Sure. I've got that taken care of, but I only, they're, they're, you know, that life insurance is a whole separate topic that we could, you know, cover with a, with a podcast of its own, but the, but that you should actually start thinking about, in my opinion, you should start thinking about that early on just because it's so cheap when you're younger. Yeah. So, well, it's a time where we don't usually think about even benefits that come with a job. Right. Much, much less, you know, the negative what ifs. I mean, people in their 20s, usually relatively healthy. But that's another reason why it's a bad idea to be carrying much of a balance, if at all, on a credit card. Because say something does happen, something, some emergency of some sort, and then you still have this credit card payment that you're supposed to be making every month. Right. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's that takes away from super tough. that disposable income that I was talking about earlier. Right. So, um, okay. So to keep us on track, yes. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about early stages of a relationship, cohabitation. Right. So is it better for couples or are there advantages on either side? Is it better for couples to combine monies once they're in a property together or to remain separate, like have separate accounts? 
That's a very good question. Uh, a very specific question, but it's, it's a very, uh, has a very broad answer. Well, um, go for it, but I'll do my best. Yes. Um, I would say, and, and I kind of learned this, um, just from personal experience that it's better to have, to keep in general, keep your finances separate and come to some, some type of agreement on what expenses are going to be shared. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, and I learned this later on that even if you get married, once, once the contract is signed, um, it's good to keep the, the account separate because if, if one of you has, uh, some financial issues that come up, mm-hmm. you can keep them isolated from one another because a lot of times what will happen is people will, will, you know, apply for joint credit or, or what have you. And suddenly those things be- become combined. Right. And if you have one, one of you, it has really good credit and the other one doesn't, that can, one can affect the other essentially. Okay. So talk more about that. So let's say one partner has bad credit mm-hmm. and another partner has good credit. Will getting a joint credit card help the poor credit person? It can. Um, one of the things that you can do is the person that has good credit, they can open the account in their name. And like I said, just like in this, in the example with, you know, the, the parent and the child, uh, you can add, you can oh. get them a credit card of their own while not actually making it a joint account. So, gotcha. Um, okay. but for, for any list of reasons, it's, it's good to keep the money separate. Um, and it's, and it's not, you know, I, I don't want, I know people can tend to get sentimental when it comes to relationships, but if, if you're approaching it just from a cold, you know, sure. dead smart angle, then it's, I, I always say it's better to, to, to maintain your own, uh, accounts, you know, your own bank accounts, your own credit accounts and, uh, and just wait until they're, you know, the really big financial decisions like buying a house is when you start to consider maybe, you know, getting on that, on that ship together. Now I've heard that even in buying a house, so, you know, mortgage or even refinancing a mortgage, that it's better to kind of keep the poor credit spouse kind of away from those situations. Yeah, that's, and that happens a lot. I, I've seen, uh, I'll have closings where, uh, because Texas is a community property state, for example, uh, both spouses are going to be on the deed of the property, but they're not necessarily going to be on the application for the loan for the property. So if, you, if you're in a situation where one of the spouses has better credit and, and probably makes more money, mm-hmm. then it makes more sense for them to get on the loan application by themselves. Right. Uh, if, if they, because what will happen is a lot of times um, the reason for a joint application is so that the couple can combine their incomes and then uh, make that that debt to income ratio threshold mm. that all the the mortgage lenders have. Usually, it's like around anywhere from you know twenty five to thirty percent. Um, so anyway, if you, if you add up all of your debt payments, you know your car your car note if you have one, your credit cards, gotcha. student loans, anything, you add all those up and you divide that by the total income that you and your spouse have right as long as that percentage stays under say 30 percent then that they'll the lenders will tend to look on that favorably and okay. you're, you're more likely to, to get the application or I, i'm sorry get the loan so uh so if it makes more sense to just have one person on there and based and based the credit decision just on that one person then there's nothing wrong with that this sounds like 
the beginning of the idea that the two of you, if you're going to be living together, if you're going to, if you're moving towards, you know, deeper levels of commitment of whatever sort, that you need to start having intentional, open conversations about money. That's key. I have had it in my other life, you know, I'm a therapist. <laughs> so I've had lots of couples come in and they'll say, you know, I, I don't have these conversations with my partner because it frustrates them or it burdens them. And I, you know, I can just handle it. And I'll have to tell them when you do that, you're helping keep your partner a child, right? Y you have to kind of this is, this is their situation too. And you have to kind of confront them with it or say, look, we both need to work on this together. And I need you to have this conversation with me like an adult. I, I think the best way to sum it up is it's okay if one of you makes the majority of the decisions or one of you is uh, steering the ship. But everyone, uh, and, and Mark and I were talking about this earlier because mm -hmm. he was asking about the podcast. And I said, um, everyone should know what cargo is on the ship. Yeah. So even if it's just to have a conversation, just so you understand what we, you know, what you have, what you owe, get a sense of the overall picture. Sure. Then you're miles ahead of everyone else. Right. And, but when I say that out loud, it sounds kind of sad because <laughs> that's very often, that's how I see sure. it play out, yeah. you know? Uh, and then inevitably something happens. It's like karma you know, is playing a trick on you. Sure. You know, dad, the, the primary uh, breadwinner, you know, passes on or it can't work anymore. Right. And mom doesn't know yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oftentimes I'll step in and, and, you know, little woods can, can help bridge that gap somewhat because we know where to start to look. But at the end of the day, it's, it's better and I encourage couple, particularly couples to do this, mm -hmm. at least let's share the information. Right. Even if somebody is going to make the, ultimately may be making this decisions, everyone should know right. what's going on. Right. You should, you should take an inventory and at least you have that. So I think that either a major purchase like a house or, you know, the milestone of marriage, I think that's where a lot of women almost like handing off the financial situation to their partner. Like, it, it's it's a it, split of responsibilities. We tend to usually think of the finances as being kind of like the guy's job to manage. I mean, although I have heard, you know, many great stories about no mom was always the one that handled the accounts, things like that. Um, Dad still might have been making some major decisions in the house, but insofar as how the money, where it went, da-da-da. Um, but when you take yourself out of the equation completely, you could be setting yourself up for a lot of significant loss. Not, not could be. You are. Yes, true. I, I would. Sure. I'd say it as plain as that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I just, I, I, I think the the best way to avoid that is to insist that you be, you know, a part of the discussion. I think that it's something that you have to. In kind of, as I said before, intentionally build into your relationship. You have to start with small discussions about how do we view money? How do we work with it? What's our weaknesses? What's our strengths? You know, like I've told a couple of friends of mine, and this is a very small thing, but I've learned a trick with myself when I go into Target. I actually aim to spend more time in the store. 
mm-hmm. because the longer I spend in the store, the more stuff I will take out of my basket. <laughs> I will talk myself out of, right? Because you have a, t- you walk in the door, you hit the dollar section first, you pile a ton of shit in your basket, and then you're walking around, you're going, I don't need this crap. Why am I buying this crap? <laughs> and so I find a way to, you know, work around that. Um, in my 20s, I used to be a very big impulse buyer. So if I knew I had a date Friday night, Thursday, I'd be at the mall picking out a brand new outfit. It's a terrible idea. Terrible. So as I've aged, I've learned, here's my weaknesses. Here's what I'm good at. I mean, like, I'm very good at managing my recurring payments, my rent, uh, my loan payments, things like that. Um, But you have to have these small talks about your feelings and your beliefs about money. That's true. And, and I would, I'd go a step further. I would say that, um, you know, you, you spoke earlier about, uh, dividing up the responsibilities in a relationship. People shouldn't think of the money part as like, okay, he does the dishes. I do the the laundry or vice versa. <laughs> right. This is a completely different animal. Especially here. when there's a two income household, which most of us are these days. Right. If exactly. not more. Yeah, exactly. So you're making part of it. You should be chiming in. Yeah. The working class truly is the working <laughs> class now. And, and right. some of us, even with two incomes, have multiple jobs. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if we decide that we want our kids to, to go to private school or, uh, you know, we, they want to participate in, in sports, you know, traveling sports league or what have you. Those things cost money. Oh, yeah. And, and parents go out of their way to make sure that. So that's the question of what do you value when it comes to money? Right. So one, because one partner might say, no, I value that as an experience for a child. And the other partners might say, no, I value storm windows on the house. Like, right. That's the trick. That's what I'm looking at. They're not 30 years from now. They're not going to remember cheerleading. What are you talking about? Yeah. No is a powerful word. And, and, and a and, complete sentence. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a word and a sentence all in itself. Right. You get a twofer. Yeah. No, it, it's. People have to learn that. They have to learn to say, like I said, step back, look at it cold and say, is this, is this really the right decision right now? And, uh, but again, I, I want to emphasize it's not, I don't want to say people are making bad decisions because like, I don't judge it like that. I just say right. it is what it is, you know? Well, one of the tips that I would give is if you and your partner are having discussions about what we're doing with our money, there's no wrong answer. Don't snap to judge like like the example i gave about the cheerleading versus the storm windows right right? like one person on one side could say your point is stupid like no no don't do that like let's talk about what are we valuing in each part what are the salient factors that we're focusing on and come to understand so that we can see okay so i kind of get what you're saying is there another way that we can achieve that kind of thing sure and when you when you come to a point where you have a small amount of money and there has to be some kind of compromise or something has to get chosen first, I would recommend instead of just coming to a compromise where one person kind of abdicates, actually form a plan with actionable goals about how we can then meet the second goal. Right. And, and, and that's, that's a key word goals. You, you should actually uh, sit down, work out a budget, put in one column. Okay. These are the things we know we have to pay for. Right. And in the other column, kind of tier it by level of importance. Sure. You know, okay, yeah. number one, we can pay for this. If there's still some money left over, then we can go to number two and so on and so sure. forth. So Importance or sometimes time-sensitive things. That too. There are some, you know, there's just some windows that it's like, well, we got to take care of this in this window kind of deal. And also another important key point is 
people also need to allow for emergencies. Yeah. And it could be anything. It could be medical. The air condition can blow out, which here is a serious problem. <sighs> yeah. um, dead in the water then. Yeah, some, <laughs> something happens to the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, those things are going to come up, I promise you. So yeah. you, you always have to include that X factor in there uh, as a part of any financial plan. So these small conversations that you have, also maybe just straight up monthly check-ins where we sit down and we go over the balance sheet, we go over the ins and outs, here's what we did well, here's what we did poorly. To me, this the idea of this is if you are the partner, male or female, that doesn't like talking about money, gets squeamish about it, this is where you're building up a resiliency to these conversations. Right. You don't have to expect them to be emotional. You don't have to expect them to be critical, right? Right. They, you could go through them and go, well, then that was great. Look at that. Look what we did. Go team. And, you know? and this is where the importance of, and this is another point, asking for help. And that's where someone like me could come in and say, Sometimes we, what, one of the things that we do as part of a financial plan is we create what we call a personal balance sheet, kind of like a corporate balance sheet. We list everything that we own, everything that we owe, mm. and then we figure out what we're worth. Gotcha. But sometimes just the laying out of all the pieces, you, you see the jaws drop, yeah. right? You yeah. see, holy Christ, I didn't know this is what we had. I didn't know that, that we had all yeah. of these you know, credit accounts or you know, medical bills or what have you. Just put, making out a list is enough to p- get people to wake up and say, okay, we got we to gotta consider a different approach. Now, when you say you see the jaws drop, I want to ask you a very important thing. When you're doing this with a couple, do you have this conversation, this meeting in, with both of them? Yeah, uh, that's when we, when we first start out, the initial consultation, I, w- I will suggest that, that both parties be present if it's a, if it's a couple. Um, but I have had cases where I will actually meet with a couple for a few minutes and then we break off and I meet with them individually because that's how they choose to, to do things, sure. you know? Um, and uh, one of the things that we'll, we'll talk about in, in, in later episodes is this uh, new prolifer- proliferation, excuse me, of the postnup where oh, yeah. where women are actually literally they're coming to me and they're they're saying, Look, I'm married to this good for nothing. He doesn't know how to manage money. <laughs> if if I leave him, I wanna know that I'm gonna be able to keep this house. I don't want him to have any of it, you yeah. know? And in a community property state like Texas, that's something that you have to get around. Yeah. So people are it's, things are getting that bad where we're actually considering, okay, not only do I wanna Tell my advisor I want to keep things separate. I want to tell the state of Texas that I want to keep things separate. <laughs> Very official at that point. Right. Yes. Put, putting words on paper. That's where it's gotten. So uh, so the, the reason I ask that is that, you know, this episode is all about empowering women to be knowledgeable, be in control of their own finances. But a lot of times financial advisors are kind of complicit in leaving women out of the equation. Sure. They'll have a meeting with both and they'll talk directly to the guy and I think every time we've gone in to buy a car, the salesperson talks directly to my husband. It's the worst feeling in the world. Right. Um, or just leaves the wives completely out of the discussion. Right. Their numbers will be on the balance sheet, but they're not there hearing the information. Right. Isn't that ironic? They're they're literally putting their their blood and sweat into that and, and they have no say. Uh, that it goes also bar- seems like it would be a bad deal on your end. 
Yeah, no, because, absolutely. Because like that makes your job way harder when then now I don't have somebody who understands what we're supposed to be achieving here. No, and 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 I want to emphasize this. Um, where like I, it it goes back to what I said about the this cultural programming that we're still kind of stuck in the past. Yeah. That the default is whenever we sit down with someone, uh, a potential client, if the if there's a man and a woman there, then the the first impulse and and this is actually you'll. If you were to go through a sales training process at a major financial firm, there there are actually parts where they'll say, look at the guy and say X, Y, Z. Yeah. I mean, it's built in there. Sure. It's literally in the code. So, <laughs> In the manual. <laughs> yeah. So, And so, but, again, you're talking about this like kind of antiquated mindset, but it is something that is still happening. Even in, as late as 2012, I believe it was, there was a survey done of millennials, 20 to 34, and 59% of them, females, were letting the men in their lives and their relationships run the financial show as compared to 55% of women 50, or sorry, yeah, 55% of women over 50. Right. So you can't say that it's an ageism problem. Right. It's not it's a generational that we thing. Still, yeah. It's somehow built into our, and in a, in a climate where we're really mixing up, you know, gender norms, things like that. Like, why should this be the last bastion? Like, this is your pocketbook, ladies. Like, why is this being left out? Right. This yeah. this should be it's crazy at making. the forefront, yeah. in, in my opinion. And, uh, hmm. yeah, I, I no, like like you said, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely makes my job easier when I can have <laughs> both voices. And, um, and I, I, I actually take, uh, I'm making a sort of effort to, uh, to get the woman's perspective, God, it sounds terrible. Um, to get the female perspective on on what's happening, you know, with the household finances, and because I find the and the research tells us this that the irony is, you know, when when women first start out, uh, once they enter the workforce, once they start managing their own money, they actually do better because they they save more, they invest more conservatively, and when I say conservatively, they just they don't go and you know, not high risk, right? That yeah. well, they they don't take chances that yeah. you know they don't go dump you know five grand in penny stocks or something like that. Um, so they 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 understand that there's uh, a bigger picture right away. But so once, we're not wild and emotional like everybody thinks, right? Exactly. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but but like you said, once once they they get into a relationship, for some reason that changes and. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's the part that I'm that I'm trying to. Uh, that's one of the main missions of my company is to try and and bring that back into balance. So let's talk about the worst case scenario of divorce or death. Right. Okay. So this is where a lot of times that those seeds bear terrible fruit. Is that now on the occasion of someone dying or you're facing divorce, if you have left yourself out of the financial picture. You can find yourself with huge debt. You can find yourself lost, un- unsure if taxes have even been filed. I mean, like the 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 astounding list probably goes on, right? Right, right. You you, you don't know, particularly if if uh, if there's one person who's doing everything. You don't know if you have debt in arrears to the IRS. You don't know uh, how many credit cards accounts there are out there. That you don't know if they own have any CDs sitting or savings bonds with a bank or if they have own any life insurance, whether it's, you know, a lot of people forget they have life insurance at work, you know, they, yeah. they just, 
they they sign up for it when they first get their benefits and and then they totally forget about it. Um, but that's something that needs to be included in the equation as well. So, um, so you mentioned credit cards, and I want to ask you. Can we table the part that we had planned to talk about with Social Security benefits? Can we move that to another episode? Sure, sure. And skip ahead now to something that you and I are both, unfortunately, you know, have a lot of experience with, not necessarily personally, but, you know, um, and are rather passionate about is financial abuse. Right. This is something that whenever I mention it to people, they are astounded. Yeah. I will, I will often start this off by saying, you know, there are actually worse things that can happen in a relationship besides sexual infidelity. Try some financial infidelity. Exactly. Because I have had couples hit my couch with mind-boggling stories. I had one guy call me, and he said he wanted to have sessions for anchor management because he found out that his wife had opened up credit cards and amassed $75,000 in credit card debt. Mm -hmm. And he was angry and he needed to figure out how to deal with his anger. And I was like, you need a lawyer and a divorce. Like you need out. Like I don't know. You should be angry about this. Right. And you and I both know this is not a new phenomenon. No. But this is a new term. Financial yeah. abuse. We all, we so often we focus on the physical abuse, which right. is which is equally terrible, but the And they're off, often together. Right. But yeah, they yes, go often yeah. they go hand in hand. Sure. sure. Um, and the, one of the big problems is uh, once you figure out what's going on. So if you're in a relationship and uh, you kind of get a whiff of some infidelity, as you call it, uh, and then you find out, let's say you pull your credit report and then you see a list of all of these credit cards that you know you never applied for. Right. Um, and this is a this is where technology comes in. Your spouse can go online, fill out a credit card application online, sure. even gets through some of the security questions because they know you well enough and they know the answers. They can start opening credit accounts. You have no idea that they're, that is being done unless you pull your credit report sure. and then you see it. And that's one of the things that we do uh, at Little Woods as part of a financial plan is we always pull credit reports and, and credit scores because if there are any discrepancies, we don't want any secrets. Yeah. And if there's anything that we can correct yeah. that can improve your financial health and the overall, we're going to do that. Now, that is a bear going to bat with the credit reporting companies. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And particularly the in the case of financial abuse. Uh, Good luck. They, yeah, there's no legal recourse. No. You can call the police. You can get it on record. But at the end of the day, there's really nothing they can do about it. Yep. So that's and true. You, you try and call the credit card company and the company is going to say, no, you open this account. Yeah. Or if it's your own bank account, because I had this happen. If it's your own bank account and you let them into it. Or if, like you said, they just have access to your social security number or your banking website or whatever, and they get into it, they don't care. They don't, they will not care one bit that you weren't actually the person who hit buy now uh, on whatever thing. Right. Because it was your account. You let them in. You're still liable. So, yeah, they're an innocent third party. Right. The technology doesn't know from no. man or woman, husband and wife. They just see sure. the the numbers of the letters, you know, so, fan across. So in talking about financial infidelity, to me that means someone who is doing something with money behind your back that's dragging you through it, though you may not know it, right? Right. Uh, I've even had a spouse that declared bankruptcy and her, it, their partner didn't know about it. Right. And how you can do that, I don't know. But anyways, um, but then on the other end, 
when I want to say financial abuse, uh, that can be something such as like sabotaging someone's job, actually. Right. Um, or uh, blocking them from being able to make like payments on rent or uh, t- taking away resources and actually like isolating uh, the person making it more difficult for them to leave. Right. Even. And there are very famous cases of this. Uh, Tina Turner, when she tried to leave Ike, she said she had to go on food stamps and she was famous at the time, like, but she had no money to her access. Right. Uh, even Mariah Carey, when she split from Tommy Mottola, everybody around her was on his payroll. So she was basically shut out financially. Right. So even prominent, smart, educated, you know, women can find themselves in terrible, terrible positions. And that, and that's another good point is people uh, sometimes make the uh, the assumption that uh, financial intelligence goes with with regular intelligence, and it just it's just not true. It, people I've seen wealthy people make the same mistakes that people of say a lower economic strata would 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 make. Oh yeah, they burn through money, make bad investments. Sure. Look at. Uh, all the stories you hear about professional athletes and, and the frequency within, I believe, within three years of, say, like an NFL player retires from the NFL, yeah. they, they go bank, uh, something around 70% of them go bankrupt. It's, incra- it's crazy. Um, and that's because, and, and this is another thing that comes with age, is, you know, scientists tell us that our brains aren't fully developed until we're 25 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine if you're 20 years old, and you're a multimillionaire. Sure. You have absolutely no clue what to, what to do with that money. I've heard stories about athletes that will go to financial advisors and say, hey, I've got $30 million sitting in CDs at the bank. Right. And we're like, hey, great. You, you got $30 million. There's nothing to be ashamed about, right? But then on the flip side, you have other guys who, uh, you know, suddenly they have an entourage and they're, pay- they're handing out money left and right. Uh, they, they're... They're taken advantage of by lawyers, accountants, financial advisors in terms of where they put their money. So uh, it, it doesn't matter who you are or how smart you are. These kinds of things affect everyone. Yeah. Um, just to let you know, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Ohio are the only states that have anything even remotely similar in their laws um, that protects To address in the this case. issue. Yeah, yeah, to protect financial abuse. Um as of 2018, uh, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women's Act would have had an economic abuse um, added to the definition of domestic violence, but Congress let it lapse. So we're still we're on threshold of making gains in this area, but just suffice it to say, it's an, it's an extra tool that someone, if they're terrible, can use to hurt you, isolate you, hinder you, handicap you, and keep you and a lot of the focus of abuse is just to do exactly that, to bring someone low and cut off their resources. So don't stop to think for a minute that somebody won't do it with finances, right. especially if you have inklings in other areas. And, and it's, it's incredible because the, the topic of finance, it's, it's so subtle, and yet it's an issue that, it's still it's it's nowhere close to being in the in the ether. It's we 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 haven't even you know began to address it. Right. So uh, that's part of what we do is to is to at least you know bringing awareness is yeah. important. Just putting on people's radar, and you would think because a lot of people vote uh, 
via their pocketbook, you think that these kinds of financial issues would be, you know, at the forefront, but they're, they're still, they're not, they're still locked up somewhere. So it's something that everyone needs to have a deeper understanding of. But in this episode, we specifically want to let women know that, yes, it is still on you. And it, and that's a good thing to understand your finances, where they're going, what you're doing with them, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're old, young, does not matter. It's something that you, as long as you are making money or needing money, <laughs> you should be knowing what's going on with your money and having an active participation in it. And most importantly, if you, wanna, if you want to, to still delegate that responsibility, even after everything that you've been made aware of, do it with a professional. Yeah, and stay involved even at that. I mean, because you can't do what you do without feedback and involvement from the people that you work with. Yeah, I, I, I'm, in, I'm in constant contact with my clients because I, I always tell them if, there's, if anything changes in your financial situation, let me know about it because that could, that could change the whole structure. Absolutely. Well, great. Thank you for this. This has I, been really good. This was awesome. I'm looking forward to doing it again. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for today. And if you would like more information regarding today's podcast or would like a consultation with Little Woods Capital Advisors, please visit www.littlewoodsadvisors.com or call 469-406-5191. Thank you.